Welcome to the Human Everywhere podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jason Bott. Human Everywhere is a production of Deep Space Predictive Research Group. Human Everywhere focuses on what it means to be human in space. In this moment, our society, our world, our species is transitioning to being a space abiding one. And as we do that, it is critical that we come back to the singular question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human here? And what does it mean to be human in space? Joining me today are my co-hosts, Ubi and Aliris, and I'll kick it over to them to introduce themselves and our guests for today. Well, hello. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hey, Aliris. <laughs> hey, Ubi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. So I'll introduce myself and I'm going to let you introduce our guest. Okay. So um, my name is Alira Salman. I'm the founder of Deep Space Predictive and so excited about our conversation today. And hopefully what we've started pre-podcast will come out in the podcast and you all will really enjoy our conversation. So you be. Let's do it. As I, good thing this is just an audio podcast because right now my my light fell, so now I look like I'm telling a Halloween story. Um, I'm Yubi Siminye. Uh, my real name is Ubaldo. Uh, I am part of the DSP team and very excited to be here. Uh, I met Terry uh, a year ago almost, exactly, um, in Paris at IAC, the big space conference. That was my first foray into uh space conferences of that magnitude and um it was uh, it was just great like i you know it's just all the people that are who are there jason was there massive massive right like it's just it's crazy right you get all the space agencies are there anyway terry it was it was so great to meet you then and we had a long conversation uh, about the work that you're doing and you know the the work that we're all doing in this industry right and and to to get us into space and so first of all welcome good to see you how are you thank you i'm very good thanks san francisco another beautiful foggy day oh there you go sun, sun came out for an hour and oh, change well, isn't that nice <laughs> Well, so yeah. Terry, tell us first of all, because I know we want to get right into what we were talking about before we hit record. But yeah. tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing in this amazing industry. Yeah, it is an amazing industry. And I've met so many amazing people like yourself, and and the list is quite long. Uh I'm new to the industry. I I I think you know this, but I spent uh, the better part of my life as a real estate a developer, investor. I, I, when I got really difficult, I did sales, I did leasing, you name it, uh, growing family here in San Francisco. So we had to just kind of, you know, keep things moving. And uh, all along the way, you know, never stopped wanting to be a part of this industry. And that's literally as long as I can remember, as far as I can. I've, I've, I actually witnessed um, uh, the first steps on the moon. I was almost five years old. And oh, yeah. I, I can tell you that uh, I'll, you know, probably the most memorable part of that was Walter Cronkite crying. So um, first child came in and uh, I, I ended up uh, taking a big part of that load. I have a rock star partner who manages to keep um, things afloat, as they say. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went back to school and I started back in particle physics and 
didn't perfect that, but I'm definitely fairly well understood part of what I do and changed my life completely. Understanding particle physics changed how I see everything. Uh, and then I really just got deep into cosmology and, um, uh, you know, all the books. I started taking classes, got my master's in aerospace science. And now I'm in my PhD program at University of North Dakota and also aerospace science, uh, space studies, both of those. And here we are. And you and I, we met, first of all, I think we met on the streets of Paris. We did. <laughs> So, you're right which was which was spectacular um yes. what a great place to be and iac was you know as you said it was unbelievable yeah well thank you and welcome and yeah we um it really is and th this industry is and you know as you were kind of telling us your story it, it reminds me of like just how human we all are like you know it's funny to say that but you you, you don't ever think about it but here, you know, you told a very human story and we all have that same story. And so that just makes, I think, what we're all doing even that much more incredible to me because we've all taken, I mean, you're like, I'm going to go back to school. Let's see, particle physics. Like, who says that? <laughs> but oh, you I mean, that's like a went all the way to the beginning. Is what that's I right. That's right. Yeah. Well, and a lyricist like you too, like what, you know, you. That's right you know, taking this step that you're taking right now, um, at, at ASU, like what, what's, what's the draw for you, Alaris? You know, it's an opportunity to put your, you know, dreams in action and yeah. getting, recognizing one that you need training for it, but the opportunity of getting trained in this new way of thinking, because I'm, my background, as you all know, is, is psychology undergrad and master's and now my PhD, I'm like, I'm ready to be that scientist and, you know, do all the experiments and things like that. And yeah. the program I'm in is like, hold up, there's a human part of science too, not just the science itself. And it just really aligned with what I was thinking about with deep space predictive and human everywhere. It's like, there's humanity, even in the thought and development of science and how we do it, you can't get away from it. It's not, you know, like, you know, particle physics, there is, you're doing it, there's measurement, there's standards, there's design and, and testing, and it's very objective, but there's even in that, there's a human lens that is looking at it, that is trying to understand it and interpret it. And, you know, talking about our other, Jason is also, you know, getting his yeah. PhD and, and understanding another part of human, experience. So Jason, tell us about, you know, your journey here as well. Yeah. Mine is uh, in a very different way. I think, you know, I think one for the goals and stuff, but I just came to just a point where I'm just like, I want to really dive deep into what happens when we look up at the stars. My degree is in mythology, mm -hmm. um, but my dissertation is on space travel and interstellar travel and um, I actually spent last weekend in New York at the Joseph Campbell uh, archive, digging through all of his lecture notes and stuff, um, trying to validate one of my, you know, strong beliefs is that when the moonwalk happened that you just mentioned, that it made a major alteration the way we're thinking. Here's Joseph Campbell, student of Jung, um, who probably is the foremost champion of mythology 
influencing George Lucas, Richard Adams, all these others. And the second the moonwalk happened, he says, this is a change. And it appears over and over in his lecture notes, maybe not his books, but he couldn't stop talking about it because he said, this monumentally changes the way that we look at ourselves and we look at the stars. Um, and so I, I think it's that thing that kind of grabbed me as I really, you know, wanted to understand what it means to be human. And I think the stars themselves, that experience looking up is part of what it means essentially to be human. I don't think we can separate the nature of humanity from that. And, you know, mine was just out of curiosity. I'm not sure if I'm going to advance my career or not, but um, I was driven just out of pure curiosity to dig into this further. Very, very interesting. Can I ask a question? Sorry, I'm just please. What's Jason? This is a very interesting thing um, that you brought to to light. I'm fascinated with how we perceive stars prior to maybe the mid 1800s. Up until that point, right? Once the science, once the scientists took over, then that perception began to change. mythology has always been around so i was up in the arctic we were up there for almost two months for the month that we were there on devon island i never saw a night sky i never saw a star i never saw the moon uh, because it was below the horizon and it was um i felt more alone yeah this is um, very interesting i felt more alone while i was there only well certainly this is an island that's uh, five times the size of the big island Hawaii and it was empty there wasn't a human centered project anywhere other than uh, HMP and NASA Ames is around the corner and and us and I was like oh my god it's just us and there's no no human centered design anywhere which is also mind-blowing but I never felt I I've always felt more connected so I don't know uh, Ubi you may remember this but I've, I run uh, I run um, one major telescope for a major university. Mm-hmm. I manage it. And then I do that now for another major university. I run three really big telescopes and I don't do it for, I don't do it for money. I do it for fun and for full fascination and, um, and the cosmology side of things and seeing the stars and what, you know, it's literally where we came from. So do you think that the myth, the early mythologists thought of the stars as a, the birthplace of humanity. Absolutely. And actually, that's really oddly apropos. I'm in chapter three right now, my dissertation. And my dissertation is focused on what's mythology is going to be in the future. What's going to happen when we go out of space? But to do that, we've got to look back. So I'm here in Nebraska. I'm on Lakota land. Um, one of the most interesting things is that we have very recent Lakota stellar knowledge, their mythology has been really kept alive, um, probably more than a lot of other indigenous cultures. And the Lakota themselves absolutely believe that the Milky Way is the birth of humanity. You know, they said that we come from star people and that in the end we'll go to star people. For them, their heaven was the Milky Way. They actually believed that is the path um, that the souls travel. Um, in some mythologies, in some versions of the Lakota mythology, they have a hero that they call the star boy, or they call fallen star, that he waits on the very edge 
of the dark patch there in the Milky Way to literally guide the souls further on. Um, and, and yeah, and it's, it's all over. It's actually, uh, there's a great show out right now called Reservation Dogs. Um, if you guys, great talk oh. about TV makes it. Um, On FX. Season three, yes. Season yeah. three, episode three or four. Actually, Reservation Dogs. Reservation Dogs. And it's I thought I heard kids. Reservoir Dogs. I was like, oh, no, no, no. No, not Reservoir. Um, there. About these kids. <laughs> it's about these kids that are growing up on an Oklahoma reservation. And, but the third one is all, the third uh, episode of season three is all about their mythology of the star people. Because it wasn't just Lakota, huh. it was a lot of them where they believed, yes, that's where we come from. Um, you know, as above, so below. That was one of the you know, dichotomies that those are not just us, but, you know, the word is those are our relatives. Um, yeah. I, I think this kind of, I don't know, Alaris, it kind of feels like I keep gravitating back to you because I think, I, you know, first of all, the research that you're doing is going to change the way that we, that we populate space. Space is not going to need all six foot two um, male scientists and five foot uh, four uh, female scientists. It needs everybody. And so when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Um, sometimes uh, the mad people will show up too. <laughs> and, <laughs> they may uh, get there. That's the yeah. other thing. There's always the onset. They will, of they will get there. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's that change that happens both from the awe, you know, like Jason is talking about. And, you know, Terry, that with things that you've been hinting at, it's like this change has happened to us. And we engage in just being there with no other human, human life. What is that like? That changes you and in ways that we may not be expecting. And we have to yeah. be prepared for the unexpected in an unexpected way. Oh my God, I love that. I love that. I'm going to keep that trademark. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so talk about, so when you, when you talk, when you mentioned not seeing the night sky, not seeing the moon, right. Not seeing these celestial bodies that do ground every 8 billion plus human being on this planet, right? Like that's, that is the one thing we all have in common. So when you have that taken away, that's super fascinating. Like, does that, does, does, it was what an immediate disconnect. Humanity? Yeah, it was an immediate ubi. The minute we landed in Yellowknife and the sun yeah. never went down, yeah. I felt I felt different. And it wasn't just because the sun was up the entire leading time. It was because I I I I didn't first of all, I didn't know how quiet a place could be on the planet. Uh, and of course, sitting somewhere where it's that quiet, where you hear no planes. You don't hear sirens and you could hear your, you could hear your heartbeat in your ears. You could hear your chest breathing. And I, I don't, I don't, I've never experienced that. Um, well, I have in a recording studio, but you're in a recording studio packed like this and there's a musicians and they're singing and then it gets really loud and it gets really quiet. This was dead quiet for as long as I wanted and I could see as far as I could see, I could see 20 kilometers, the other side of this crater. So the, the station is on the research station is on the edge of a crater. And so the other side of this crater, you're like, oh my God. And how quiet can it be? Not a bird. <clears throat> that was the other thing. We saw two birds. 
But this connectivity thing, I keep going back to it because we were taking these studies. Um, we were involved in two studies, two uh, um, uh, IRB approved. Uh, one of them was facial recognition. Um, huh. Scott Van Noy out of, um, he, he and I graduated together from American Military University. And now he is in his PhD program somewhere else. Um, still active duty Air Force. He, he, he came up with this great idea. First of all, he came up with the idea to do the analog missions. And we started, this was three years ago, 2020. So we start, we built an analog group out of nothing. And uh, there's probably 123 members now of which we've done major missions all over the planet. Uh, mine was the furthest and the most extreme of all that I've ever seen and ever written about or ever, <laughs> ever seen. <laughs> this place was extreme. Now, McMurdo Station, definitely extreme, but you know, you're with 30 or 40 other people. Here it was Caleb, Andy, Olivia, Andrew, and me, and nothing else. Two birds. Um, so... <laughs> I, that connectivity was immediate, the loss of, I, I, because the sun never went down. So then I started losing, I almost felt, I'm not kidding. I almost felt not as smart because I've always had this connectivity to the stars. Mm -hmm. I run these major telescopes. I, I look at even last night or not last night, the night before I was up until 2 AM observing. You don't see it here, but I, I'm, I was retained to test a, a special telescope that's coming out in January oh. from a major telescope company. And so it just gets me reconnected and I was gone. I didn't have it. I usually do that all the time. And so I felt that very quickly, honestly, it was within hours. Once I, once I, cause I landed at midnight and it was bright as the middle of the day, wow. which was very strange. Anyway. You know, Terry, that's but, so interesting. Cause that's one of the theories that, going around in my head is the loss of connection that made you who you are and if the stars are you know if you know we're talking um you know cosmologically the stars are making us who we are but you have chosen stars as a way to connect other people who um who are nature enthusiasts you know, that's where they go on a hike when they're having a bad day or when they just want to get away from work. Nature is their connection or even going for a drive or a fly. And when that's taken away from you and that's your coping mechanism, you are now, what do you use to to alter or to have a new coping mechanism? Because I always think, you know, you're on your way to Mars you don't see earth again. That's not a connection point. You used to go on hikes. You can't do that anymore. And, you know, we're trying to do it virtually, but still the stark reality of it hits just a little bit differently. And that's what I'm hearing yeah. from you as well. Yeah, you're right. You, well, you, you mentioned it early on, right? This <clears throat> humans in the chain. I always say that uh, without humans in the chain, nothing gets done. Robots, awesome. They can pop around, drill holes in rocks. Tell us what's in the rock. Uh, drop the sample, and then we'll never go back to go get those samples. Because right now we don't have the confidence in NASA at the moment to pay the money with ESA and JAXA and SNES and all the others. Uh, now ISRO, you know, <laughs> what's going on? Why don't we just do that now instead of spending, Ubi, we talked about this, instead of spending all the money we spend on war 
let's spend it on saving humanity. Let's figure out how to clean the oceans. So anyways, I'm, I'm really into ocean stuff too. And so uh, part of my work uh, lately has been using hyperspectral imaging to chase not very well or not healthy plankton. And so I'm doing that because the plankton have been consuming nanoplastics sub hundred uh, nanometer. So anything around 50 or 60 or less nanometer in size. And because it's so small, the, the, the phytoplankton are ingesting it. And when they ingest it, not, not knowing they're ingesting it, then they don't feel very well. They don't perform as well. When they don't feel very well, they clump against each other and then they start killing each other because they're then uh, anoxic. There's no not enough oxygen for them. Mm -hmm. And so the hyperspectral imaging helps me see them when they're not very well. Uh, so there's only two hyperspectral imaging cameras available and nobody's really freeing that up right now. So if you know anybody, um, <laughs> actually, Larry, you might actually have some contacts on yeah. uh, there. I think you do actually, but um, so you lose phytoplankton, those colonies. Now you, then all of a sudden you lose zooplankton. At that point, if you lose the ocean, you can wipe a one and a half billion people off the planet. Mm -hmm. And um, that could happen really quickly, probably much more quickly than we want. So yeah, connectivity to the planet, to who we are, you know, the Inuit, Jason, the Inuit, you, you mentioned you're on um, 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 tribal land. We were on the Inuit property, literally, and um, had to get permission to go and do work in and around their facility or their lands. So they have Inuit lands and they have Canadian lands. And uh, I was very thankful to the Inuit. I, I mentioned that. I was like, well, without you, we wouldn't be here. So let's be honest. How the heck 40,000 people live above the Arctic Circle? I have no clue because it is not a hospitable place at all. Anyway, so Aliris, absolutely stressed every minute of every day, uh, noticeable uh, loss of facilities. Um, definitely not much more irritable because I'm usually not very irritable, <laughs> but I did notice that I was like a little more irritable and then certainly a lot more exhausted because mm. you know, you're up all the bloody time and yeah. Uh, thank God for Olivia, Andrew, Andy, Caleb, you know, we got very close. Good people. Really good. Thank God for them. And it's so anyway. good that you say that, that that's a positive experience, even though, I'm sure it was stressful and you went through a lot of things. Not every group comes out thanking everybody, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, we were lucky. Um, we all got to chance to know each other for months before that, but only once uh, together as a team, uh -huh. uh, which was good. We needed that. But um, I was, you know, I, we were very lucky, candidly. The Mars Society and, and James Burke did a very good job of, putting us, you know, the right people in the right room. Um, you know, I, I want to go back. I've offered, I offered today. I said, Hey, I'll go back on my own nickel. I don't want to go back for the entire mission, but I want to go back and start the facility up, make sure it's up and running so that the next people to move in don't have all of that. They can move right into simulation. Then you can start taking those stress tests and you can really get some results. We've got amazing results too, by the way. So we'll report those, uh, October, 5th. I think we speak about them October 5th. 
at the Mars Society Convention. Huh. So come if you want to. <laughs> I am putting it on my calendar as in Tempe, Arizona. Yeah. In Tempe. Yeah. It's in, I, in fact, I'm looking for a place to stay. <laughs> Kidding. Uh, I did look at an Airbnb that looks really nice. It's got a pool. I'm like, I'm not going to be here enough to be in a pool. Anyway. <laughs> Do it anyway, just because it, yeah. Just because it's Tempe. So have you been, so I think you and I have talked about this. Oh man, maybe last year, uh, kind of remembering, I don't remember, but I know we've had this chat, I think in Tempe. And I knew you were in the psych side of stuff too, which teams not working together, bad things are going to happen. Yes. Nothing else good can happen from that. And it's just giving people the, free. I, I mean, part of my, my reason for doing this is to normalize that, yes, we are human and we're not perfect and it's okay. It's, it's like, it's okay to have a bad day because you can recover from it. And when you go through yeah. it, you're stronger. So when the next bad day comes, you're ready for it. It's like, I know yeah. how to, how to, you know, address this bad day. And that's what people fear. They fear the bad day. And that makes it worse. Like stopping a sneeze. You know, you don't want to stop the sneeze. You know, it's not going to be yeah. pleasant when it's over, but that little process is, you know, you know, it's going to come. <laughs> Yeah. That is so weird to think about because clearly none of us are, are the same every day, right? We're never at 100% every single day. It's just, it's just not possible, but yet we expect it. And like it's sort of driven in, you know, and that's where I get annoyed with, um, you know, job descriptions that are looking for people with grit, right? Because that's sort of what they're implying is that you got to come and you got to be 100% and you got to give 100% every single day. Well, that's not even possible. So yeah. why are we instilling that? Because that's just going to lead to problems to, to your point, Terry, that, you know, it's like <laughs> one bad day will, will set things off. And if you, if, if, if the people aren't equipped with the right tools and resources to manage that and learn from it, to your point, Alaris, somebody's going to open an airlock. And it's all over, right? Like I'm just, it's just all of those things that could happen will happen. And and that's why that's why it just blows my mind that there hasn't been an enough of a focus on this. We take a <clears throat> we take a survey, 162 question survey, um uh beginning emission, mid-mission, end emission. Uh then we do the facial recognition survey. We do that um every other day, I think that was, and we meditated every day. I think we did a very good job of, so I've done several analog missions. Uh, this was hands down the most extreme high fidelity. I, I felt like the minute we landed and those, those little bitty twin otter planes took off, I felt like we're, we're on our own. This is it. We're, you know, we could be on Mars, except we're not wearing a pliss. That was the only difference. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the place looks like Mars. There's no life anywhere you look. There's nothing. You, you have to look really hard. Now, there were a bunch of places where it might be a little more damp. And there were these tiny little flowers. I don't know if you guys saw any of those posts that I did on LinkedIn. Yeah, I know. Tiny little bitty flower, it's called. 
the um, Arctic poppy. Beautiful, stunning. You're just like, how do you grow here? <laughs> and I just I'm looking in. Of course, that's the astrobiology side of things, right? So when I started doing co uh, cosmology, uh, then I started my thesis, my uh, master's thesis was on an exoplanet that I co-discovered with uh, an undergraduate student. <clears throat> and I had to do, I, I did a deep dive in exoplanet um, science. And then of course, that made me fascinated with astrobiology. So I don't know, Ubi, when I think through all of the mad days that I have every day, practically, especially with the kids, especially you know, here in San Francisco, it's total madness. Mm -hmm. Um I'm still fascinated with what we do in our business, aerospace science, um, the science of humanity in space. My PhD is uh, human-centered uh, design. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the projects that they've allowed me to follow. Um, oh, you're going to love this. <laughs> it's a um, it's a human habitat, human-rated habitat, lunar surface. We're going to make it with lunar crete. We're going to align it with Ubi, we're gonna line it with my electromagnetic field. Yeah. And yeah. which I have two patents on or patents yeah. pending. And we're gonna, you know, we're gonna make our first lunar habitat in at University of North Dakota. We're gonna make it's gonna be fake, but you know. Hey. Anyway. Uh, how how do we fit five people in comfortably, right? Um, right. so that they have their private space, so that they have the galley space where they can all eat together. Windows, you got to have windows, right? Yeah. You know, you know, you you said something earlier about them. You're looking at, you're peering out the back of the, you know, the ship, and there goes Earth. It's gone. When we landed, there was no sign of Earth. I didn't. The only thing I knew, the only reason I knew we were on Earth, is because there were clouds. One study that we did, that's uh, uh, Olivia is going to publish. Likely, we did radiation studies there, and so. You're thinking, ah, oh, radiation, no big deal, right? But our control was in SoCal. So Southern California, um, she had it in her apartment, control. I, I think she'll be okay with me talking about this, I hope. Anyway, um, and then we did three other locations up and around us in the habitat upstairs and the habitat downstairs and then one hanging outside. We were um, double digit Millie Sievert in SoCal and we were triple digit Melly Siever in the Arctic. And so we went from no exposure, magnetically you know, protected, magnetically field, you know, field protected to where all of a sudden everything comes in, all the mass, all of the radiation, everything comes in, even with an ozone, you're still gonna get a good radiation exposure up there. And sure enough, it was five orders of magnitude. Wow. Higher wow. radiation, now still not unsafe, and still no neutron radiation, thankfully. But oh, that would be weird, wouldn't it? You, that was the thing. You, now we did have Starlink. I gotta say, so we were fully connected. <laughs> I could have, I could have called you, and I did yeah. call people when I had to. Interesting. But, so, we, and by the way, we had to. So, yeah. injury on the mission, severe injury. I had to triage the severe injury, wow. and had I not known how to do that. It would have been, you know, draw straws to see who wants to solve this issue, right? And I just jumped right in. I'd, I'd been to really difficult, scary, deadly places, and people have died in my purview, mm. practically in my hands. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, Olivia even, she said, how did you, you know, 
how is it you were able to get through the stress of that? And I said, I've just seen, I've seen all of it, right? Seen it, smelled it. There's just horrible stuff. So you kind of, you know, I don't know. I don't think you need those kind of people on a mission, right? To Mars, but you sure need somebody that's going to be cool as a cucumber when the shiitake mushrooms hit the fan. Well, and that, because, that, yeah. that sort of goes to where I'm headed now. And Jason, this is like the, the philosophy, the mythology, right? The belief, the, yeah. the system that we build in not only individually inside of our heads, but as a team um, of, you know, the, these standards and laws, right? The governing beliefs that we're going to have, like, how does that then, where does that come into play? And it, it seems like it's situations like this where everything else seems completely lost. When does that start to come into play? I would argue that it actually comes into play immediately that that philosophy is being shaped either it's shaped consciously or shaped unconsciously. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have an option. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned mythology. I mean, mythology and systems are, you know, different, but I mean, at the end of the day, mythology is the father of philosophy. We can't help but create that. Humans are going to create those systems. We're going to create these connections. We're going to create these things around us for the purpose of helping us make sense. You know, we're pattern sensing people, we're pattern detection people, and um, we're going to put those in place, which I think in a way emphasizes, you know, like I said, the work that Alira started with Deep Space of we can either, if we assume that we're just going to put up humans up there and they're just going to abide by the mission protocols and not develop their own systems of governance and, you know, then we're foolish. So we either be proactive and engage and guide and direct those system developments as we add people, not just two or three, but, you know, when we're talking about crews of 100, 500, and that will happen at some point. Um, we need to be really, I think, proactive about that. It's, I, I always look back at William, William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Um, for whatever purpose, you throw kids out on a deserted island and they're going to create their own system, maybe in terribly barbaric. And he had comments about, you know, his opinion about human nature, but it does go to show humans will create those systems guided or not. And mm -hmm. if we're not careful, those systems could actually be antithetical to the very purpose of why we put them up into space. Hmm. Wow. You know, does leadership, Larry, does that play any role in the work that you guys are doing? Well, leadership is definitely a part of the group experience. And it's interesting because my my next study is about looking at at leadership and how that may change within the same group. You know, you talk about situational leadership. People have different experiences and different talents. You know, you're talking about your experience with the injury. If, you took leadership in that moment and people respected you for that. Now you will probably take care of everything with that, you know, when it comes to those kind of situations. Mm -hmm. And it, it just depends. That's the thing about the group. The group evolves and changes. And it, it really depends on what the group needs. And that's why you need people who can be okay being the follower. 
because you're not always going to be the leader in everything that you do. Um, you know, Jason, when you were talking about uh, the different types of society, you know, evolution in society, one thing I know is you get further and further from Earth, the more your decision making has to be on a social and societal level because you have to create systems that aren't bound to earth. Uh -huh. You know, with the moon, we can see the earth and we're still bound to it because we can see it, we understand it, we know the context. Mars, you're gonna have this team making team level decisions. And as more and more people, you know, become part of the mission and the further we get from earth, the more we have to make decisions that create new societal changes, rules, uh, and engagements as we go. So the further we go, the bigger the decision-making and the bigger the impact. Have you written on that? That is a really good topic to... You know, it just, I was giving a talk and it that, yeah. that aha moment about that kind of decision-making really started to, to emerge. It's like, oh, because we talk at 100-Year Starship about, you know, what it, what are we sending? What are we creating? Um, talking about those big societal uh, questions. You yeah. can't talk about that on Earth, near to Earth, because we've already created it. Uh -huh. It's intact. Yeah. It's going to be different the minute you walk out the door and right. get on the next ship. Um, can you imagine a hundred people traveling? I don't know, yeah. Jason, you mentioned that earlier. I was like, oh, what would that be like? <laughs> there might be some anarchy. Yeah. Yeah, there'll be anarchy, there'll be everything. And, you know, and I think a lyricist used this illustration. It's, you know, let's say you send them out interstellar, you have no guarantee that they're going to hold to the original mission. Once they're out there and they're on their own, it becomes their own priorities. And their priorities will be defined by whatever conditions they have put around themselves and whatever stories they've told themselves, mm -hmm. you know, and whatever stories they begin to tell about us. I mean, I, I hate to get political here, but look at just what's happened in the U.S. It doesn't matter if you can have reality and facts staring you in the face. A story well told, no matter how ludicrous it is, can actually compel people to do things, you know, that are very antithetical to the very nature of who we are. You know, I mean, I'm talking about the, you know, January 6th uprising. I'm talking about... You know, there's been these things where ultimately at the end of the day, it was a story well told. We may not have liked the storyteller. We may not have liked the story, but it became very compelling. And, you know, that will happen in the future in space. Well, you're locked on a ship with that wall. Ubi, come on. you and Generationally, I mean, you think, you know, and I'm thinking about, um, you know, the, the TV show Silo that just came out on Apple TV. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, based on wool. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. And it but to this point exactly, right? You're you're how many they're like two or three, four generations now past, you know, let's say our present. Yep. And it's exactly the stories, all this stuff's sort of been altered in a way that certain people are left in power and there's new rules and new laws, and but nobody's that nobody knows what to like they have to believe it because that's just how they grew up. Mm -hmm. like at that point you, you've you, that history is gone unless somebody has done a good job of preserving it yeah. or staying in contact it's that's gone. a crazy film it's have you finished watching it 
Yeah, I just finished. Yeah, season one. It's crazy. Like it's, and then the reality a- when it just hits you. Here's the thing, but the generation that changes is always the fourth generation. That's the one you have to worry about because they're so far from that original mission. Yeah. Yeah. Jason just said, you know, they start making their own rules, their own stories. If you can make it past the fourth generation on a generational ship, you know, that they still have the purpose in mind and the passion in mind in the same way as your mission, but it's, it's changed. But I always think it's that fourth generation that you gotta, uh, that's, that's so where the target needs to be. Is well, that at, at that point, it's funny because at that point, then the original mission is sort of myth. Like it's, you know, like it, we come back to this idea of what, 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 you know, how mythology and all that becomes their story. The fourth generation, that's their belief system almost but not real like and then they can decide whether they believe in it or not right like we're doing now like you know there's so many people now questioning the religion and all that's right it's, it's that yep. same conversation wow it's really fascinating yeah i mean we could keep yeah, talking is, clearly i was gonna say this is a this is a deep <laughs> track this no. is great um well what do you think about analogs you guys do i mean how's the response been from other people about analogs in general yeah we've they, gotten some good like so them? we you know the last person we talked to was your friend bailey burns oh yeah i love her we love She's bailey awesome. and yeah. yeah i mean you know she had um it's funny everybody's sort of had slightly different perspectives on on analog missions which has been really you know, <clears throat> i'm supposed to go to sam um i was supposed to go to to sam and do a mission this fall. I was like, oh, man, I don't know. I need some time. Um, <laughs> time to process. Because when I go in, I, I go in for the science. I take uh, our IRB approved um, studies with me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I'm really into lately, you know, I'm, I'll get, you'll get a kick out of this. I know you know this, but I'm, I've been into algae. Algae, mm. you know, we've had, uh, five, you know, Earth's Earth-wide extinction level events, and uh, every one of those we repopulated with the help of some type of an algae or a cyanobacteria of some kind yeah. that you know kind of brought us back to life. Um, you know, so that is that's when I see those algae mats. I don't know if you saw any of those the pictures I, I posted, but Olivia and I were charging around in our backpacks and our helmets and very high fidelity. And she goes, what's that over there? And it was this big, huge algae mat. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, whoa, let's go. I mean, I, first of all, I wanted to get a piece of it, bring it back. And then I wanted to get, I wanted to sample the water. So I brought the water back. It's fine. I'm going to test it because I want to know how the heck it just came out of nowhere. It's growing literally out of nowhere. So everywhere you look, there's nothing except for the tiny little Arctic poppy. Um, there's these other weird little plants. And then you turn a stone over and it's like you'd find like this little worm, tiny little worm, they're called Arctic snails and uh, nothing else. Um, well, now we did see coyote scat and, or not coyote, excuse me, wolf, uh, Arctic wolf scat. And then we also saw claw marks and looked like teeth mark from a bear polar bear but we never saw him or her thankfully um but i have to say 
the isolation thing that you're on, Alaris, that's kind of, I think once the, once the team, the crew is isolated, and if you're no contact with anyone other than MCC, plus your emails that you're going to have, which will be video emails likely, right? Mm-hmm. How is the human going to react? I don't know that they'll do that well. I, I, I think we can say we'll do well. I would lie and say, oh, I'll be fine. <laughs> and then it'd be a total head case along uh-huh. the way. But uh, anyway. Yeah. See, I kidding. think that's what's going to happen is people are going to try and power through because yeah. you've used, that's what's made you successful as a person that you powered through. And now yeah. I want to yeah. make sure I give you additional tools when that doesn't work. And it will happen. There will be those moments. Yeah. Even little, I had little moments. So I'm be very candid. I'm, I don't mind. I'm an open book. Um, Bailey knows that. Um, most of my friends know that. I'm just desperately honest. And one of the things is that, that I get aggravated with is when, and it shows too. So when the minute I get aggravated, whatever it is that triggers me, it's just a little trigger sometimes. I have to take a deep breath. I have to literally take a massive deep breath and go, and nice, calm down, no big deal, you know, just and then move on. Um, but it happened twice. And Olivia goes, Oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. And the perception, right? Of this is a good one. Perception. What no offense, women have a better perception of what the heck is they see. And I think they just are a better reader of a book. Um because Olivia saw it right away and nobody else did. Interesting. Uh-huh. But anyway, I don't know. We'll see. Have, we'll have to have a professional soothsayer, palm readers, something like that. Oh, there you go. <laughs> be fun. Of, there have, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, we'll have to do, uh, we'll have to kind of put together your dream team. Like, like who are you, you know, it's almost like Dungeons and Dragons or something, right? Like I'm imagining, right? Like who are your, you need a mystic, you need a, the doctor, medicine, yep. you need a storyteller. Uh, you definitely need a storyteller. 100%. Yeah. You have to have someone, and it'll be a funny storyteller. I need funny stories. I can't stand yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you have to have a storyteller, right? Yeah. Um, because if you don't have someone that guides that story, someone else will rise up. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually think I'm, and maybe there is a future episode where we dive into Dungeons Dragons. So, you know, Something. I mean, yeah, yeah, because well, you well, can see how. Oh yeah, well, and you can see how teams. I mean, D and D is a great example of what happens when you can't bring cohesiveness together. You know, and tricks that DMs use, like. My constant trick is I, if I cannot get a group that's gelling, my first thing I start to do is try and make personal goals. Like, why does this matter to them personally and give them a personal investment? If I can get them over that, it's amazing. Once they have a personal stake, they start to filter through. But I mean, there's so much we can do there, you know. So have you guys heard of um, Loretta Hidalgo Whiteside? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, 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 we all are big Loretta fans. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've taken, I did Space Guy in six and then I did, I went back again. I did get a top off and uh, <clears throat> that, that's how I got to know Bailey and a bunch of other people. Um, in fact, all of her crew, 
uh, she went into Sam with, I got, and then some of her other crew that she went into, um, I think it was high seas. Yeah. Anyway, mm. you know, um, I've got 60 days inside analogs and I had a grown man on his knees weeping and, you know, there are going to be moments when people will lose yes. the plot and mm. somehow you have to be able inside to have the heart for that person to be able to have a proper chat with them because their value doesn't diminish because they've lost the plot. Mm-hmm. In fact, if they may actually bring, Larry, you said this earlier, they may bring something else to the table that's more, that's a little more positive. Maybe they've, because they feel so deeply about something. I'm, I'm, yeah, this is a really interesting talk track. I didn't expect this. I thought we'd be talking about rockets. Kidding. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. Or <laughs> Sizzler Industries. How do you, how do you, how do you weld in space? Yeah. <laughs> nope. No, this is anyway. all about, this is all about us. This is all about the humans. So deep space predictive is probably going to lead the way in that from what I can see. I don't know what you guys think. We're working so. on it. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're hope so. And it's, I mean, I think, and I'm so surprised that no one has talked about it in this way and people are always open when we talk about what deep space predictive is and it always amazes me is like why is this so novel and I think it's the fear is like the fact that a person you know kind of broke down and was on their knees crying and it's like that it's okay because we know it's going to happen and we got you that's that's what it is it's like I got you it's gonna be okay and that's yeah. what I really want to take into yeah. into every mission. Is like we got you. I love that. The problem is the problem is why we haven't gotten there yet is because, and maybe this is just me, but the you know that 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 um, I, I feel like if somebody were crying in front of me like that, I, I would freeze up, and I feel like most people would freeze up. They wouldn't know what to do. Like that's so uncomfortable that that's why we haven't touched on it yet like that's, we're gonna push that down the line a little bit uh, you know do you do you i heard this um simon Sinek. have you guys heard sure. any of his work yep. brilliant brilliant mind came from nowhere literally yeah. um but i love the fact that we all and loretta teaches this <clears throat> you have to have a purpose what's your purpose it has to be well defined Mine is not well-defined, but um, because I feel like I have, I'm a multi-person, multi-purpose person. Yeah. I say that three times fast. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm concerned that many of the people that we send up now don't have these type of interpersonal training sessions, right? Or, yeah. you know, um, and we had a long, we had a lot of chats, the five of us uh, for our mission up to the Arctic, a lot. Like it was a lot. I thought it was too much, but I'm glad we did it because, <laughs> you know, we got to know each other, even though most of it was here, right? Thankfully we have this technology now um, that definitely changes things. Although you could all be bots. And, you know, <laughs> but all right. <laughs> Jason's like, yeah, don't forget. That's true. <laughs> anyway, um, do, do you, uh, you know, my, my pushback to anybody who 
doesn't want to participate in something like that. It's just like, hey, we're going to have to bring the whole thing. This is yeah. it. Yeah. We, and when I, I, I have baggage that I tell everybody when they want to know, and when they want to know, I'm I will answer the questions. Yeah. Truthfully, and that probably scares a lot of people. I think yeah. most of the time. Yeah. In fact, today someone asked me, "How do you think Earth is going to do?" I said, at its current rate and trajectory, I said, it's not going to go well. And he goes, what do you think then? And I told him my nanoplastic story. <clears throat> and uh, hmm. so I'm worried. I'm worried. And, uh, you know, we need to be ready. And, and humanity has to be ready. So we have to have these conversations now. Well, thank you for being a part of this one. Because exactly, we agree. And... We're going to keep doing this and uh, having these, I mean, just absolutely enlightening conversations and hopefully they spur more, right. You know, and, and spur more ideas and thoughts um, for people to go out and maybe this is somebody's moment to go start studying particle physics or something. <laughs> yeah. that's right? We can inspire people yeah. to go out and do that. Cause that's what we need to back to the original point. I think uh, Jason and Terry, you both mentioned it like, it's going to take all of us, um, every single one of us. So, Terry, thank you. It's always, always great to see you and talk to you. Yeah, thank you for wonderful. being here. And yeah. thank you for your time so much. And I, I, I can tell we've taken you to a place you weren't expecting, but I appreciate nope. that you went along the journey with us. Yes. Thank you. So appreciate it. Thanks for leading us that way. Absolutely. And thank you, everybody, for continuing to listen in to the Human Everywhere podcast uh, season two, we're right in the middle of it. So keep listening. Really appreciate it. Take care, everybody.